This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by Dr. Lance Law and Dr. Mihaela Bogdanov at Comfort Care Family Dental. Hello and welcome to Dana Being Dana. I'm Dana Michelle and I'm thrilled you're with us. My show is all about different aspects of the human connection, things that bring us together and living life intentionally. The experience of a miscarriage or infertility happens far more frequently than we all realize. Globally, 48.5 million couples experience infertility and an estimated 23 million miscarriages occur every year. Yet it is something that we do not talk about enough. Many people do not talk about it at all. I am honored to have nationally and internationally known influencers in this space to talk about infertility. Joining me now are Dr. Charles E. Miller, one of the top reproductive endocrinologists and fertility doctors in the area, and his patient Anastasia Guido, and my friend Jennifer Ballard-Croft. Anastasia, you are the mother of a young son, and you recently had a miscarriage. Can you tell us about your experience? Yes, so I have a 15-month-old son, his name is Luca, and shortly after having him, with the help of Dr. Miller's office, we ended up pregnant naturally, which was just not supposed to happen. And um, we called Dr. Miller's office. They said, sure, come on in for early monitoring. And we did. And my son was only three months old at the time. So I was stuck somewhere between, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? And oh my goodness, we got pregnant and this is a miracle. And there's a baby and so much excitement. And that quickly came to a halt when we found out that the baby wasn't forming and it ended to be a blighted ovum. And that was really hard to swallow, uh, especially because we did it on our own and we thought, we, we can do this. And so I ended up having to have a DNC, which was extremely hard, not only for myself, but for my husband. Um, and. After that, a few months passed, and there was this just burning desire in me to get pregnant again. And many doctors, my OB, told me, you know, it's very soon. You don't need to have another child right now. And just knowing that I could, we could get pregnant, I wanted to have another baby. So when my son was eight months old, we returned to Dr. Miller's office. And we said, we're ready if you guys are. And we redid a lot of the testing that needs to take place with infertility and to prep a woman's body. And with, with the help of their office and an IUI, I'm currently 21 weeks with twins. Wow. So <laughs> That's great. back to back. And, you know, at first we kind of joked that the joke was on us. We said we were going to have kids close together in age. And now here we are with twins on the way and a 15-month-old. But... It's, it's a beautiful thing. Thank God for science. Thank God for Dr. Miller's Thank office. You. And I'm just really happy to be on the other side of a miscarriage because it's a really dark place to be during those months when you think, you know, my body failed me. My, my mind is crumbling with my body. It's, a really, it's really hard to process. And, you know, with the good community and backing, including the staff at their office, um, they kind of became family. And a lot of those women coached me through, um, as well as Dr. Miller, coached me through how to process it. And I'm just, I feel really blessed to be pregnant again and be on the other side of my miscarriage. So I want to clarify, uh, did you have difficulty becoming pregnant with Luca? We did. So um, right after our wedding, we decided we were going to start trying to get pregnant and months passed, coming up on a year, and we didn't have anything, not a close call, nothing. And that is when we sought out Dr. Miller's office. And, you know, you don't know what to expect when you head into infertility. And um, we thought, we're going to meet with this doctor. He's going to say, sure, these are the steps you take, and we're going to get pregnant. And that's just not how it goes. I'm okay. sure millions of women can attest to that. That's just not how it goes. So for almost four months, we did testing and prepped my body, prepped my husband also with vitamins and things like that. And we were lucky enough to become pregnant on our first IUI, which is almost also unheard of. Um, <laughs> and we were super lucky. And luck is a big part of fertility, yeah. honestly. And mixed with the expertise and the science and 
so yeah, we struggled emotionally and physically with becoming pregnant with Luca to begin with. So, Dr. Miller, can you just explain? She mentioned IUI. Can you briefly tell us what that so, is? So IUI means intrauterine insemination. Basically, what we're doing in this case is we prepare a, a woman hormonally uh, so that she has a, a good ovulatory pattern. But around time of ovulation, we prepare the, the male sperm so that we concentrate it and we take out some of the, some of the, the, the semen factors which would cause the uterus to, to, to contract uh, vehemently and then are able to place that sperm directly inside the uterine cavity so it's closer to the fallopian tubes where actually fertilization occurs. Okay, thank you. Jennifer, you had a miscarriage in 2019 that was somewhat different from Anastasia's. Can you please tell us about your story? Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Of um, so in 2019, I found out that I was pregnant, um, had not been trying. It was a welcomed surprise. Um, I was in my mid-30s, and so my husband and I had been married for a couple of years. We're kind of deciding on the right time. <laughs> um, but I knew enough to say, let me go to the doctor and, and see if hormones are right, if, if I'm there would be any you know, anticipated complications. Um, and so in that process, I found out I had a fibroid. And it was in the visit with the specialist for the fibroid that I found out that I was eight weeks pregnant. Wow. So um, we were really excited. I really felt like I had cleared the major hurdle of, of getting pregnant. Um, and you know, we waited the 12 weeks to tell our family and friends. Genetic testing went really well. So we were just fully preparing for mm. our Christmas baby. Um, my 20-week appointment, we pushed back a little bit to 22 weeks just because of some scheduling things. And a week before I went in for that, some major anatomy appointment, I went in with something very minor. Um, it was kind of a phone call to the doctor. She said, come in, we'll just check you out really quickly. Um, my doctor was on vacation. I had a nurse practitioner. And I knew right away when she was looking at the, the monitor that something wasn't right. Um, I texted my husband, who was not at the appointment with me, and just said, I need you to pray. Um, and so she went and got a doctor, and the doctor came in and said, yep, it is what you think it is. And she looked at me and said, I'm sorry to tell you, your baby doesn't have a heartbeat. Um, I kind of blacked out right. <laughs> from there a bit. Um, but I think the, the reason why this story is really important and sharing stories is immediately everything got very clinical. Um, I was presented with, you have options, you can have a DNC, you can do a delivery, um, and, I, and I remember just kind of very loudly saying, I need you to stop talking. I mean, at that point, I hadn't even told my husband, right? Um, so cleared the room, told my husband, and, and I, at that point, realized I needed to take control of the situation um, and said, I, I'm not going to make a decision today. We're going to go home. We're going to talk about this. Um, in slowing down the process, we made some really crucial decisions that I think really helped with grief and processing. We didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. We decided on a name for our child. We decided if we were to have future children that they were not going to be our firstborn. I mean, there were just a lot of things in how we wanted to process it. Um, I ended up moving forward with doing the stillbirth delivery. Um, I was in labor for 22 hours, um, but I was able to hold my child. I was able to see my daughter, Christian. Um, and so there was a lot that I learned about the medical process that I think people don't talk about. Um, and I think it's really important to share. Well, I thank you for sharing. Um, we go back and, and grew up together. So I'm familiar with your story and I appreciate you sharing all that you shared today, both of you. Dr. Miller, how common are miscarriages? Unfortunately, very common. Even in, in a young population, uh, below the age of, of 35, you're looking at one in six pregnancies end up in miscarriage. As you go to, to close to 40, it becomes one in five. And by, time, by, by this time someone's in their early 40s, and many women are getting pregnant in their early 40s, it's, it's one in three. So, uh, and most of the time, even, even in the young group of patients, we look at 50% at, uh, of the time, it's due to a chromosomal abnormality, either a bad sperm or a bad egg. And then again, unfortunately, I'm saying the word again, because as a, as a woman matures, more of her eggs are genetically abnormal. 
So that increases over time. So it's a, it's a real phenomenon. Jennifer, when it was appropriate, you shared your story on, on social media. Uh, why did you share and how did you feel about sharing? I'm a really private person. I know. Um, but it was, I, I was so visibly pregnant, right? I was past the halfway point. Um, and so if, to some degree, selfishly in the beginning, it was the way to rip the Band-Aid off and tell everybody at once so that I didn't have to have the conversation over and over again. Um, but very quickly, I was flooded with not just the comments. It was actually the personal messages of people that I know, I love, that had been through similar things or um, you know, this entire topic that we're talking about, whether it was challenges in getting pregnant, challenges staying pregnant. Um, and I think that I really discussed a lot of the, the clinical aspect that I, I told you about and, and my husband having to really fight for me when I was in labor for those 22 hours. There was a lot of pressure for me to do the DNC. It was not what I wanted. Um, he had to fight really hard for me on that. Um, there were some other you know, decisions where I think the medical staff really wanted to, to speed up the process. And, and I, I know on the back end now that was for my benefit. You know, I talked to my doctor when she returned from vacation and she said, we just know how to, to help on the medical side. So for us, we're like, we need to get you through this moment. For me um, and my process, I needed to slow it down. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think in sharing that story, um, it helped me process it, what happened. It made me realize I was not alone, and, and I hope that it did some good for someone else who is going through it. Anastasia, you didn't share your story on social no. media. Can you tell us why? Yes, so when after meeting with the doctor, um, we discovered that the majority of our problem was male factor infertility. And so I had to really respect my husband's wishes as well. Um, a lot of time it is the woman, and had, had it been something with my system and my husband said, you know, I don't care, I want to share anyway, that would have been really traumatizing for me. And so he wasn't ready to share. And obviously I respected that. So I kept it to my, myself. I did have a strong support group, um, but posting on social media wasn't something he was ready to do and that's the decision that we made. I want you two to talk about support um, because I think it's very important for people to understand uh, your thoughts on how to best support an individual or a couple going through this situation. I think it's important not, and you may disagree, not to tiptoe. I remember when I did find out I was pregnant, um, I didn't want to post anything. I didn't even want to tell people I was pregnant because I remember how hurtful everybody's happiness and pregnancy posts were for me. And one of my sisters said to me, you know, why should you mask your happiness after the struggles you've been through? And so I did post it, and the outpouring of joy and a few people that did reach out to me and said, you know, I'm so happy for you even though we are struggling. And I did privately share with those people, we did too. Um, and so I think not, not tiptoeing around these people saying, you know, I'm here. Just being, being present and being there. So you may disagree, but. No, I agree. I, I think you take your cues from the couple, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I agree the directness is, is welcomed. Um, my husband, one of the first outings that we went to after our pregnancy loss, I remember people were being <laughs> very weird. And uh, at some point somebody was tiptoeing and he said, I, I just want you to know there will never be a day when I will not want to talk about my daughter. And for, that has been our approach. And yeah. I know that not everybody shares that, but for us, being able to talk about that we, we had this life, I, I do have a daughter now. Um, I have a one-year-old daughter named Karis. We tell her about her big sister, Christian, and, and we always will. Um, so I think you take your cues from the couple and how they, in the directness aspect, but I think you show them love, you show them that they're not alone. Um, I don't think that you give false hope. I didn't know if we would have children again. I still don't know exactly what happened in my first pregnancy. Right. Um, I don't know if there are future children in our, in our future. So I think you kind of have to just be direct in the moment and, and be there in the moment for them. What advice do you have for women or couples going through this experience or who will go through this experience in the future? Talk about it with each other with whomever you may be comfortable sharing it with, write it down. I journaled from day one with our appointment with Dr. Miller's office. 
I wrote in there, I said, guy seems to know his stuff, Shar <laughs> look sharp. Look sharp. Yeah, I and I wrote that in my journal. I said, and I think this is the doctor we're gonna go with. And as that progressed, you know, I wrote in there, met with Dr. Miller, he said these are our options after the blighted ovum. Met with Dr. Miller, you know, write it down. Don't brush it under a rug, don't, you know, that's my advice. Jennifer, any advice for couples? I think to the extent you are in a partnership when this happens to you, um, don't hold on tight to each other, right? Don't mm -hmm. lose sight of, um, especially as the women, um, people will extend a lot of condolences to you, will check on you. Um, husbands experience, male partners experience the loss as well. Um, and somewhat, as I've talked to my husband about it more, in, in, in different ways that are, are difficult as well because they weren't carrying the child and, and didn't feel the kicks and, and all of those things. And so I think staying in that partnership and talking about how you're feeling about the entire process. Do you want to try again? Um, what does this look like? You've got to be able to have that open conversation. Dr. Miller, what advice do you have for couples who are going through this or who will go through this? Dana, before I give my advice, I just want to talk about uh, the, 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 the differences between Anastasia and, and Jennifer. Whereas we talked about Anastasia's problem is a, is a frequent problem. Unfortunately, frequent. Unfortunately, Jennifer's problem is a very rare problem. By the time a woman reaches the end of the first trimester, 12 weeks, the likelihood of miscarriage is really low. So it really, less than 5%. So it really compounds the grief right. in a situation such as, such as Jennifer unfortunately had to go through. Right. Now my recommendations. Well, the first recommendation that, that I have is that I would recommend when someone does miscarry, even the first miscarriage, that a woman, that a couple tries to determine what is wrong. Uh, much of the time when someone is dealing with a general OBGYN, they say, well, you just miscarried, it's probably the genetic related problem and you'll be fine. No, try to find out, try to get the, the pregnancy analyzed so that you can determine, is it a genetic problem or is more workup recommended? Secondly, I would suggest by the time that a, that a couple loses a second pregnancy, that absolutely they look to determine the cause. There are many things that we look at, whether it be genetic, whether it be structural, uterine fibroids, whether it be problems in, in terms of, of autoimmune, the body rejecting it, or bleeding problems. All of these need to be looked at. Uh, so, so I believe that by the time someone looks at a second miscarriage, it's time to get investigated. That makes sense. Thank you, Anastasia and Thank Jennifer, you. for sharing your stories. It is my hope that the transparency of my friends reminds someone out there that they are not alone. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Dr. Miller and I will be joined by three women who have turned their personal fertility journeys into public advocacy to benefit others. Don't go away. Hello, I'm Dr. Lance Law, part of the husband and wife team at Comfort Care Family Dental. I'd like to be the first to welcome you to our office. We strive to make every visit a relaxing and stress-free experience. The desires and needs of you and your family will be our primary focus in delivering the quality dental treatment you deserve. We offer a wide array of dental services. You can relax and enjoy most procedures all at our convenient state-of-the-art facility. Your dental needs will be well explained and all questions will be answered by your educated and well-trained team. We pride ourselves in making every patient part of our dental family. We strive to be the dental provider where you will be proud to refer your friends and loved ones. Please give us the opportunity to be your new dental home. Welcome back to Dana Being Dana. Dr. Miller and I are still talking about the important topic of fertility and infertility. Joining us now are three women whose personal journeys have turned into a catalyst for change and influence in the fertility space. 
Through their incredible advocacy work, they are a voice for those muted, frustrated, or underfunded. Thank you to Nichelle Polston, board member of Resolve, the National Infertility Association, to Nika Gray-Valburn, founder of the White Dress Project, and Dr. Camille Hammond, CEO of the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation. Dr. Hammond, you Thank have you. one of the most unique fertility stories I have ever heard of. As you know, I attended Spelman College with your sister, Simone Cade, so I've known your story, which made international headlines for years. Can you share your personal story um, that led to the work that you do today at the Tanina Q. Cade Foundation? Absolutely. Thank you for having me and uh, for allowing me to share and to talk about the work that we do and the way we support families. So my husband and I met the first week of medical school and we had what I would consider a fairy tale romance. And uh, a few years later we got married and I knew I had endometriosis. And so it would be important for me to try and uh, get pregnant soon so that I could have babies. Um, that's what I had been told by my providers. Uh, so literally started trying to get pregnant on our wedding night. And a year later, we started going to the fertility doctor and uh, started what would ultimately be uh, six rounds of IVF. I never got pregnant, uh, despite the fact that I was young and healthy. And at that last round, my doctor said, I don't think that you should continue with this because you, you know, thus far, you have not been able to get pregnant and there's really not any reason to believe that if you keep doing the same thing, you're gonna get a different result. And he suggested that we consider either adoption or a gestational carrier. And, um, you know, we were devastated. We didn't even know anyone who admitted that they had infertility, let right. alone they needed someone else to carry a baby for them. But when I shared with my, you know, what our situation with my parents, my mom and dad asked if my mom could carry a baby for us because she was healthy. Now, she was also 54 years old and postmenopausal, so she had already gone through the change of life. Mm. Um, and my husband and I are both young physicians, and we thought, well, we never heard about that in medical school. Uh, so we politely declined, but um, my parents were persistent. They were very faithful, and they said, well, let's, let's see what can happen. And so after a lot of talking, uh, we moved forward, to get her tested. Her doctor said they didn't think it would kill her, but you know, they couldn't really say what would happen because there weren't many 55 year old women who were trying to get pregnant with their grandchildren. Uh, any actually at that point. Wow. Um, and so, uh, but we moved forward. They were very faithful. And um, my mother at 55 postmenopausal was able to conceive triplets. Um, we, all, we put three back because we had always put three embryos back into my womb uh, when I had those six rounds of IVF and I never conceived one. And so I thought if we put three back, hopefully we'll at least get one. Well, those three embryos are now almost 17 years old. And so, yes. Yes, yes. yes. So my, my message to everyone is don't give up. I don't care how bad it seems. I don't care what, what prognosis, what the prognosis looks like. If you don't give up, there is a pathway to parenthood. It may not be the one that you imagined um, about when you were a little girl or a little boy, um, but there is a way for you to become a parent. There is a way. Um, can you talk about how you have dedicated your career now to helping raise funds to help other families? Sure. Well, so I, I, uh, my husband and I decided that we wanted to give back in the way that we thought we could give back to the community of families struggling with infertility was to raise money and give away $10,000 to one family to help them with whatever they wanted to do to build their family. Um, so we had to register a nonprofit and we named it after my mom because symbolically we wanted to give that same gift of help give that gift of parenthood that she helped give to us. Um, and that first year, we actually raised enough money to give three families grants. And um, after a few years of running the foundation on my free time, I, I left my clinical practice and I run it full time. And so Cade Foundation has at this point given out grants of up to 10000 for 134 families throughout the country. We've given out almost a million and a half dollars for infertility and adoption support 
Um, and um, that's what we do. Uh, that, well, that's what I do full time. Um, and I'm really privileged to be able to work in an area that I have a lot of passion and enthusiasm. And I, and I can absolutely relate because I remember. Yes. Um, and I think that the work that you do is great. Uh, I can empathize with endometriosis because I had fibroids mm -hmm. and just anything that can complicate the ability to get pregnant um, is, is important to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. I had an embolization. Um, I'm actually a patient of Dr. Miller's and uh, I had an embolization in 2019 and, and my fibroids are, are actually back. Yeah. So Tanika, I can directly relate to the work that you're doing in the fibroid space. Can you tell us what prompted you to create the White Dress Project? Yes, absolutely. Well, Dana, thank you so much for having me. I am always ecstatic to have these conversations because I feel like they are so important. Yes. I think that once we begin to have these more often, then people will um, become comfortable with sharing their stories and we will begin to eliminate some of the stigma and, you know, the taboo culture that we have around reproductive health. So, just wanted to thank you for, for hosting this. My pleasure. Yeah, the, the work that we do is very important at the White Dress Project. We are committed to ensuring that people who are suffering with uterine fibroids don't have to suffer in silence and that they understand that. And also that they understand that their, their story has power and there's so much power in their voice. Uh, to answer your question, I really started this organization for myself. I didn't want to feel alone with uterine fibroids any, anymore. I didn't want to feel like I was the only one who was canceling social events or bleeding multiple days in a row, you know, killed over on the bathroom floor. I no longer wanted to feel like that. And for me, my story um, is interesting because my mother had fibroids. So I was familiar with what they were, but I still just felt so lonely when it came on to my peer group, right? I Me felt too. like I was the only one who wasn't wearing white at the white clothing party Me or, too. you know, who was canceling all the time. I was always that girl in college who, you know, if you take a road trip with me, Tanika is the one who has to stop at the rest stop um, because of, you know, frequent urination. So I no longer wanted to feel that loneliness. And I knew that if I was feeling it, then there were so many other people who were feeling it. 90% um, of black women, 70% of white women will have some type of uterine fibroid by the time they are 50. So for me, starting this organization was imperative because we have to have this conversation. Anything else that you know would impact that number of people, there will be commercials and marketing campaigns and, and just so much more. Even while I'm still on my, my journey to motherhood, you know, when Dr. Hammond opened, I was just like, that's exactly what I needed to hear today. No matter what the prognosis, no matter what the doctors are telling you, no matter how you feel, no matter what has happened in the past, keep going. And I'll add to that, which is what our organization provides, which is share your story. And, and you never know who your story will help. And ultimately it helps and heals you. Yes. Michelle, I wanna to turn to you. Uh, you're, you're a board member of Resolve, the National Infertility Association. Can you tell us a little bit about what Resolve does and your involvement with the organization? Well, I would love to say that my fertility journey has led me to resolve and has also led me to these beautiful young ladies, Tanika and Dr. Hammond. I was going through infertility. My husband and I were diagnosed with unexplained infertility. and We almost wanted some sort of answer. So if it was endometriosis or PCOS, I probably would have been comfortable. But because it was unexplained, I, I was upset and, and fell into a depression. But I also felt the need to do some research. So I went to look for an organization and, and found Resolve and said, hey, I would love to see more faces of color 
on their website. So let me reach out and see what I can do and how I can raise awareness in my community because I felt like I was the only black girl <laughs> struggling with infertility. I, I, so much so that I remember going to a fertility clinic and running into a dear friend of mine who I would talk to all the time. But to answer your question, I thought that it was necessary to raise awareness, to be the spokesperson, no matter how embarrassing it felt like, I just felt like I needed to put a face on infertility for at least my friends and for the people who are in my circle. And so I stress to folks, just I'm so happy that Dr. Hammond shared a bit of her story and Tanika, you know, you and I have had some, some deep conversations, but your your story is someone's survival guide. And so I wanted to be a survival guide to someone so that they too can feel like, hey, let me keep this going. And plus resolve means action, right? So it's, it's important for us to be active in telling our stories, standing in our truth and embracing our current normal because our truth or our normal doesn't make our stories are permanent or our, our journeys permanent. This is just something that we have to go through to, to get to hopefully a great outcome at the end. So Resolve is that organization that will encourage those who are going through, who have resolved their, their, their fertility journey in some way, shape or form. And for just those who wanna just be the spokesperson for those who are suffering in silence. I applaud all three of you ladies for seeing a need through your own journey and stepping up and showing up and not only in your own pursuit, um, but also in the way that you have been a light for others, for other women who are similarly situated, other couples who are going through the same thing. Dr. Miller, I want to yeah. ask you, how common is infertility and does race matter? If, even if you go back to the uh, late 1940s, when statistics were looked at, about one in six couples are looked at as being infertile. That really hasn't changed. And it really is not based on, on color, uh, on ethnicity. Uh, it's, it's looked at in, in industrialized countries, advanced countries, it's about one in six. Now, obviously, that changes over time. So that by the time a woman is 40, three out of four women are infertile. Wow, three out of four. Yes, yeah, very common. There was a statistic given earlier about fibroids. Um, right. Can you briefly mention you know, what they are and how common they are? Yeah. So fibroids are, are balls of fibrous tissue that grow in the, in the uterus but they're also associated with terrible bleeding, i.e. the white uh, dress project, as well as tremendous problems with pain. When I um, was examined for my fibroids back in 2019, uh, the recommendation was immediately a hysterectomy. And because of my own family history, I was hesitant to do that. Um, do you think we're, we're too quick to have hysterectomies or have them recommended? I think that's why research is important, to find out what will work best for you. Absolutely correct. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Stay in the know, at home, or on the go with NCTV 17 News Update. This quick recap of everything happening in and around town will be delivered straight to your email inbox for free. Sign up today. Welcome back to Dana Being Dana. Dr. Miller, I would like for you to briefly explain some of the medical procedures that, that we've been Glad talking to. about or that have come up. First of all, can you, can you briefly explain IVF? Well, IVF is where uh, a woman is stimulated with medication to create multiple eggs, to mature multiple eggs. Then under sedation, one goes in through the vagina with a needle into the ovary, takes out those eggs. A semen uh, specimen has been provided earlier, 
the embryologist then places the sperm and eggs together into a Petri dish and fertilization occurs. The embryo is, is made and three to five days later, that embryo is placed inside the woman or the embryos are frozen to be placed at a later time. Dr. Miller, what is ICSI? Well, that's actually, you know, we, we, we lump everything in terms of IVF, but really what we're doing for the most part in the uh, United States and internationally is intracytoplasmic sperm injection, ICSI. In this case, you still stimulate the woman the same way, but now the sperm, individual sperm, one sperm is drilled into the ovary, or into the egg rather, to create the, uh, the embryo. So it's much more efficient, and it's especially used when uh, there's a male factor problem. And, uh, and what is a male factor problem? What does that mean? So male factor problem may be uh, uh, secondary to a hormonal problem, structural problem, or oftentimes we do not have the reason why there's a low sperm count or low sperm movement or even structural sp problems with the sperm. And how, how common is male oh, infertility? It's, it's very common. Yeah. Infertility is not always about the woman. Exactly. 40% of the time, two out of five times, it's male factor. Yep, yep. I think that's important to note because I think oftentimes the focus is on women. Yeah. Um, and in many times it's, it's not women or it could be a combination of, of, of the same or both. Well, Dana, um, in, it really, the, the fact is, most of the time, the treatment is directed to the woman. Yes. So uh, we, we do kind of sense that, well, it's the, the woman's burden, when in fact, male factor is very important. One thing I want to bring attention to is um, egg freezing. Can you tell us what that is and, and what the ideal age well, is? I think that's a, a very important part of our practice. Uh, when a woman is not in a position uh, whether it be because of work, we be, whether because of relationships, or just because she's not there yet mentally to have a, a child, we can go in and do this very similar stimulation and extract the eggs and simply freeze the eggs to be used at a later time. Many people believe that the age is 35 when they first consider their fertility. Ladies, can you talk about the age you were at um, when, when fertility became um, a topic of discussion for you? I was 30, <laughs> and I'm 41 now. Okay. Take yeah, I, <laughs> I got married at 34, and I feel like I got really caught up into, sure. uh, you know, live your best married life before yes. <laughs> even thinking about it. And now I look back at that and I'm like, oh boy, I'm not sure, you know, what was, what I was thinking. Um, but in any event, I'm 43 now and still on my journey. And um, so, you know, you go through the range of emotions, disheartening and encouraged. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I really wish we had had the conversation earlier, which is why we encourage so many people to have it earlier, especially at the college level, high schoolers. You know, we don't need to, to always think that we're trying to rush them into sex or, but reproductive health is, is health. So we need to be conversing about it more. Dr. Hammond. Absolutely. And you I was 25 when I got married yep. and 25, 26 when I started fertility treatments. So and I was in my twenties, but I wanna, I want to say um, what Tanika said was spot on. We need to do a better job at talking about infertility and just informing kids when they take sex ed about infertility. You know, you have a lot of grown women who think that they are broken because every time they lay down with their partner, they didn't get pregnant. You can't get pregnant most days of the month. There's a very short window during the month where you can get pregnant. I feel like uh, some of that information is maybe not purposefully um, bad. They're, they're not purposefully giving kids bad information, but I feel like there's this whole push to make kids afraid of sex, um, you know, so that they don't get pregnant, but that really puts people at a, 
real disadvantage when they get to a point where they're ready to conceive because they think they're extra broken um, because this this fairy tale didn't come true. And and it's always been a myth. You know, it's it's never been every time you have sex, you can get pregnant. I mean, I I know I heard if you're 16 in the back of a car, you know, it's going (laughs) to happen the first time. Right. Well, if you're ovulating, it will. But if you're not ovulating, I mean, this is a part of health. So sorry, uh, this is my soapbox for the day, but you know what? we I need lo- to do a better job at arming the, the people who are taking sex ed in seventh grade. They need to know about infertility. I liked how you said in, in other conversations we've had, Dr. Hammond, about how sex education um, needs to not be political, needs to not be religious. Yes. Um, there's a very clinical and medical yeah. informational, educational aspect to all of this. And it's all about just being informed, which is why I appreciate having the conversation about the procedures. Um, you guys have all kind of explored or, or, or have opinions about these procedures. How expensive are these procedures that we're talking about? IVF, ICSI, um, uh, can you talk a little bit about the expense and is that preventative from people for getting fertility treatments? Illinois, I, I, I just wanna say that, that Unfortunately, as, as, as we all know, uh, fertility coverage is, is state to state. It should be national. Yeah. We all yes. should be under the same umbrella. Uh, Illinois is a very progressive state. The vast majority of women, of couples rather, I should say, have fertility coverage. And so uh, it is, it is and, and it's good coverage. It allows us virtually to do everything from, from uh, low-tech therapies such as inseminations to intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Many women also have coverage for egg freezing. Uh, so, so Illinois is a good state like that. It's, it can be very expensive other places of the, of the country. And especially if you don't, if you have insurance that is written out of the state of Illinois. Ladies? Yeah, I like to say that there are are 19 states that currently have legislation that passed allowing Mm -hmm. couples to expand their families. And and yes, Dr. Miller, you're so right. But every state, the the pieces of legislation are very different. So Mm -hmm. some may absorb some of the cost of these these uh, surgeries and others may absorb much. In Delaware, we have a, a great bill that is twofold. It covers such things such as IVF and it also allows women who have some sort of medically induced problem to freeze their eggs. Uh, but this is why resolve is so important. Yes. It's it's about advocacy and trying to mm-hmm. get other states. We have 50 states. Why not all, right? Right. So we can get every state and just people equipped and educated to just go out and not be afraid to talk to their legislators, to not be afraid to talk to their 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 jobs so that we can help other women and men. That's that's the key. Advocacy is 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 hard work, but it's necessary. Absolutely. Are there states, Nichelle, that are really progressive, and, and others that are that are not that you can that you can mention? I would suggest that everyone who is watching just to find out if you're in a state that covers IVF, in a state that covers IUI, go to resolve.org and look for the full list of each and every state. But Illinois, New Jersey, Maryland maybe a little bit more limited in terms of coverage, but Delaware, tons of others, but the, the list is, is pretty long. You can find out where you need to move to. Ah, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Hammond, can you talk about some of the funding? Because um, I know this is a very important aspect for you when it comes to uh, funding these procedures with the Cade Foundation. Yes, so Cade has a grant. I talked a little bit about our grant. Um, it's up to $10,000 for fertility treatment or adoption. Um, and if you go to cadefoundation.org and click on the grants page, you can learn about that. Or if you click on the resource page, you can learn about, I don't know, another 50 or 60 grants from other organizations that uh, support family building. Um, on average, 
an IVF cycle just with your own eggs is going to cost around $15,000, including medications, plus or minus a couple thousand dollars. Um, And if you get a cycle, it's bunded. One of those, either you pay this extra money and you, you know, either you get a refund or you you bring a baby home. Those can cost $30,000, dollars $50,000. So this is not inexpensive. Grants are an important way to fill in the gap for some people, but everybody's not going to get funded. So I think everybody can talk to their HR representative at their job. This is August. We're in open enrollment. Your, your employer may actually provide um, an option for the insurance coverage. And it may be that if you live in a state, um, like Michelle mentioned, uh, that you can switch your insurance and go to a, a, an insurance provider that actually covers some or all of your treatment for a couple of dollars additional a month. Right. Um, also, part-time jobs. Even 20 hours a week at Starbucks will get you $25,000 infertility coverage and that can cover anything from IUI, IVF to gestational uh, carrier. Um, And there are other places that would provide that as a benefit as well. So don't feel like if my job doesn't offer it, there's nothing else I can do. Um, A a good conversation with your HR rep to start. And then I think actually Resolve lists a lot of these places on their website, um, as does Fertility IQ, which is another um, great resource. But you know, touch base with your resources. There are all these great organizations that have support to provide, you know, check in and see what they can share with you so that you can get the support that you need. Yes. I want to ask you, you all, um, what are you most proud of in the work that you are doing? Because you have turned into so much advocacy, which I think is fantastic. Um, Tanika, I'd like to start with you. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, sometimes when your head is down and you're in the work, you, you don't even think about um, what you're proud of. But thank you for allowing us to think about that and recognize that. But I'm really most proud of the community that we've been able to create at the White Dress Project because when you're going through um, any type of reproductive fertility issue, you really, really need a tribe and a support system. Um, so the community that we've created at the White Just Project is really important to me, and I'm really proud of that because we're a true sisterhood. We're a true support group. We are a true group of people who are encouraging each other and not only women, but we're encouraging the men in our lives as well. We're encouraging our fathers. We're teaching them how to support us, our partners, our siblings, how to support us. Um, so really proud of the community that we've created and the, a community that has recognized that their voice is their power, right? And their story is their strength. Um, so not only being a part of a community, but being empowered to show up in a community. So activating your voice, you know, working on policy and legislation, encouraging someone else who may not feel comfortable sharing, um, so yeah, the community is, is really what it's all about for us. Thank you. Michelle? I'm just proud of the fact that I'm able to stand tall in the midst of a journey like yes. this. It, you have many highs and lows. And so to be able to stand in my truth and talk to other women and men about being active and getting involved so that no one in their community or in their circle suffers in silence. That's, that's the one thing I'm happy about. And if I could change anything about this journey, I would change, and I'm talking about my own, I would change absolutely nothing because it has helped me to become a woman who is strong in terms of sh- sharing my voice with others. So it, it, I'm, I'm a strong advocate for for fertility because of, of because of just having a group like the White Dress Project and having people like Dr. Hammond. Just when it comes to, to just no barriers when it comes to their advocacy work, I'm happy to be a part of, part of the community and just be able to share. I'm proud that I get to connect with people like Nichelle, uh, like you, like so many of these um, empowered, 
women who and men who are using their voice to support others. Um, it's it's beautiful to be in an, in a space where people are concerned first and foremost with other people's well-being. Mm-hmm. It's public health, and um, it makes me really happy. So I'm just I'm proud of the community that is here that I get to work with on a daily basis. Thank you, thank you for that, Dr. Miller. I guess a couple of things. I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that for nearly 40 years, uh, Metropolitan Chicago has had a great deal of trust in me uh, in terms of dealing with the fertility journey as well as minimally invasive gynecologic surgery. I still have a three-month waiting list, I, even at this advanced stage. And by the same token, uh, I'm proud of the fact that I continue to be an, an innovator, someone who gives back to the, to the uh, medical community, constantly teaching, looking at ways of doing things better. Um, we're, still, we're still creating new procedures, and I am very proud of that. Yes. Well, I am passionate about normalizing the fact that miscarriages and infertility happen and the support available for it all because it is so personal, it is so common, and it is not talked about enough. There are many paths to having children and things often do not go as planned. Although it may feel like you are in the darkest of hours, you're not alone. There are people who have had similar experiences. There are people who will have similar experiences. And there are resources out there to support, educate, and empower you. Thank you to all of my guests for joining me for your vulnerability and expertise in this discussion and for the way you give others insight, information, and hope. Special thanks to Shaquita Lockley, producer of Eggs Over Easy, an incredible documentary that explores fertility in black women. Thanks also to Comfort Care Family Dental for the smiles that they keep. Hopefully you have been entertained, if not encouraged or inspired. I do not promise to be an expert, nor do I have all the answers. I'm just Dana being Dana. See you next time. This episode of Dana Being Dana is brought to you in part by Dr. Lance Law and Dr. Mihaela Bogdanov at Comfort Care Family Dental. Mm-hmm.